All right, imagine that you are standing in the middle of a wide open field somewhere out in the middle of the country. There's nothing around. I know it's hard to do in East Texas because there's trees, but just imagine it, picture it in your mind's eye where all you see is this panoramic view in every direction of the night sky, crystal clear night. You picture that? Okay, now picture this. Out there in the middle of that field, you step behind a telescope. And you look through that telescope, and what you see is no longer the whole expanse, but you can kind of zoom in on just a certain portion of the night sky, maybe a constellation. But then step back from that telescope and then step into a, behind a much larger telescope, something that can see a lot farther, can zoom in a lot closer. And not only are you looking at a big constellation, but now you can zoom in on one single star and really see the details of it. It'd be an amazing experience, right? Well, this is kind of what's happening in Colossians, the New Testament book of Colossians, chapter 1. We get this huge expanse view of God, right? This is how Paul starts his letter to the church at Colossae. And he, in verse 15, says, look at Jesus. He's so much bigger than, he, than you thought he was, right? He, he is the Lord of all creation. It's like this panoramic view. You see how he's so much bigger. And then it's like he steps behind the telescope and he zooms in on a certain portion of it, like in verse 18 through 20, showing how Jesus is not just the Lord of everything, but he's also the Lord of the church. This grouping of believers that have been, been purchased by the blood that he shed on the cross, that he made peace with God uh, by doing, verse 18 through 20, and then how Jesus is also the Lord of the cross in verse 21 through 23, detailing the differences, the difference that the cross of Christ makes in the life of a believer. But then in verse 24, it's like he gets behind a much larger telescope and he zooms in all the way into one single star. In fact, it's his own story. Verse 24 and beyond, it's like it's going beyond what's true for all believers and he's giving us a personal testimony using his own story as an example to us that Jesus is the Lord of the Christian. Now, Aaron did an excellent job last week. If you were here, you heard it, you experienced it, preaching and teaching verses 24 through 29 and drawing out the primary application of these verses, which is that Christians proclaim Christ. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord of the Christian is that Christians proclaim Christ. But what I want to do today is kind of turn the telescope a little bit and look at that from a different angle. Actually, the same verses we studied last week. Christians proclaim Christ, which, by the way, echoes Paul in his letter to Philippians when he says in chapter 2, verse 15, that we shine like stars in the world holding on to the word of life, right? So you can check this out. Um, if, by the way, if you missed last week, can I just mention this? If you missed last week, um, Aaron's sermon is available on Marvelous YouTube. I want to encourage you. Uh, we don't stream on Sunday mornings, but we do record and post so that if you can miss, like I had to miss last week, you can catch that on YouTube later, okay? So go check that out and, and see how he drew up that kind of primary application. But I want to look at the same verses from a different angle. I want to move the telescope to see a secondary application. These verses, these five verses in Colossians 1, 24 through 29, are kind of an autobiography from the Apostle Paul. So not only is he showing us an example of what all believers should be like, he's also giving a model of what we should expect 
from spiritual leaders. Because Jesus is not just Lord of the Christian, he's also Lord over the minister. And so a lot of what we're going to do today is give you expectations of what you should expect from your spiritual leaders, myself included. But we can know this and we can see this, um, you know, how we ought to set expectations. But you might think uh, you sort of know what to expect from church and from your spiritual leaders. Uh, others of you may be feeling like you're pretty new in the room and you're going like, I don't really know what to expect. I, everything so far has been different from what I expected uh, or whatever your thoughts are. And you might feel like you're kind of an outsider or you're new in the room. I just want to let you know, hey, since the pandemic, everybody's new. This is a whole new experience for us, right? I mean, you're all relatively new. If you're not, even if it's your first Sunday, you're like, just welcome to the new. Uh, not only is it sort of the new makeup of our local congregation, but it's also sort of a new era for our church and our congregation here in Marshall. You know, for our history before the pandemic, we were primarily a video venue where we would receive mostly video preaching from our Longview campus. And then that shifted in the last year and we've become almost 100% live local preaching. Not only that, we're taking more and more ownership locally of how God is using our congregation to reach this side of East Texas as Moberly Baptist Church. And so this is just kind of a new era. So I'm just gonna welcome all of us into this new era and say, this is a good time for us to set some expectations. And the first expectations that we can set is for the people who are your leaders. And so here's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through 29. Look at it with me here. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I'm completing in my flesh what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. So looking at this verse from a different angle, we see four commitments based on Paul's example that you should expect from your spiritual leaders here at Monterey. The first one is this, is that we are committed to serving you. Committed to serving you. Verse 24, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And I'm completing in my flesh what's lacking in Christ's affliction for his body, that is the church. I have become its servant. See, Paul said his suffering was for the sake of the church, of which he'd become a servant. So the hallmark of Paul's service to the church. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote two-thirds in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul who's responsible, it can all be traced back to him for the entire continent of Asia, hearing the good news of Jesus Christ in the first century. He says the hallmark of his service to the church is suffering. Not preaching or sermons or salvations. Suffering. And I want to suggest two ways that this happens from the text. First, suffering for the gospel. Suffering for the gospel. Remember, if you remember from last week's teaching, 
The word affliction there in verse 24, it doesn't refer to the work Jesus did on the cross. At first glance, you would look at that and you would think that it's talking about how Paul is, how somehow he has an activity in what Jesus did on the cross for our salvation. But the word affliction in the rest of the New Testament is never used in context of the cross of Jesus Christ. Suffering is, but not affliction. But it is used in referring to how Jesus was treated. Jesus' work on the cross was complete. It needed nothing else. It was lacking nothing. Salvation is available to us through that. You don't need any other person to make salvation available to you. It comes only through Jesus Christ. But this phrase does point to the way Jesus was treated and the way we should expect to be treated when we bring the truth of God to the world. None of us in East Texas expect to be jailed or martyred anytime soon, although these things are happening today around the world to people just like us. But pray for your leaders because, and pray for yourselves, by the way, because we need to be people who refuse to quit when the going gets tough. We need to be people who, when another pandemic comes, we refuse to quit. When cultural animosity toward the church rises, we refuse to quit because suffering for the gospel, according to Colossians 1, is an experience that unites us with Christ unlike any other. Do you want to know what it's like to know Christ? Experience suffering and affliction as he did. And so as spiritual leaders, we've got to be committed to serving by suffering for the gospel. So that's my hope is that, and as you pray for me, that our leaders, including me, whenever things come our way, we will not back off of the truth of God. We won't lay down and we won't give up because we suffer for the gospel. But the second form of suffering is suffering with you. Not suffering from you. <laughs> Your pastors and ministers aren't suffering from you. They're suffering with you. And I want to point to this word servant. It's one of my favorite words in the Bible. Uh, the Greek word uh, that's used here is the word that we get our word deacon from. Uh, it's also translated throughout the New Testament with the word minister. So think about that for a second. Deacon, minister, servant. It's all one word in the New Testament. We just translate it different ways in different contexts, okay? But it's one of my favorite words in the whole Bible because of how it breaks down. If you define it with its prefix and suffix, dia and konos, it's pronounced diakonos. See, that's how we get deacon. Catch that? Diakonos. Dia means through and konos means dirt. So its literal definition is through the dirt. Through the dirt. This is what it means to serve. It's being willing to get your hands dirty. It's being willing to do things other people won't. It's being willing to go the extra mile to lift other people up. So ministers, deacons, spiritual leaders, we don't get the front parking spots. We take the back parking spots, right? We aren't afraid to walk into a mess, whether it's a physical mess, like something that might happen in a kid's classroom on a Sunday morning, or a spiritual mess, something you're going through in life, maybe an emotional mess, something in your family you're dealing with. We're not afraid to walk into those things with you because God has called us and commissioned us to be servants. 
We're willing to go through the dirt. That's a commitment we make to you. It's a commitment Paul made to these people. He wrote this letter from a dungeon jail in shackles because he was suffering for the gospel as a servant of the church. That's where it came from. But Because he understood no amount of misery was enough to hinder the ministry to which he was called. In fact, misery often meant the ministry was succeeding. And that kind of flips things on the head for us, doesn't it? Misery often meant the ministry was succeeding. So like Paul, we rejoice. Isn't that an interesting word to use in conjunction with suffering? We rejoice because suffering for the gospel and for service to one another means we're accomplishing what Christ set out to accomplish through us. If you have an English Standard Version copy of the Bible, that translates this phrase uh, as Paul's sufferings as filling up what was lacking. Filling up what was lacking. But don't we often think of suffering as something that drains us? Something that takes away from us? Something that empties us? But here he says the suffering is actually what fills up what was lacking in Christ's affliction, meaning he's joining Jesus in his work for the church. The spiritual truth is that it's only when we are emptied that God fills us up with something better. It's like the journalist and author David Brooks said, if you ask anybody, what's the activity that you had that made you who you are? No one says, oh, it was this great vacation I had to Hawaii. And no one says that. If you want to know what made someone into who they are, the better version of themselves today, what they're always going to tell you about is some sort of suffering or trial that they endured that made them into who they are. So what if it's true that suffering makes us more like Jesus and brings Jesus more glory? If that was our perspective and our commitment to the church, then we would be able to rejoice in all things and walk through all things together. So this is a commitment that your spiritual leaders ought to make to you to serve you. Also another commitment is to steward God's word. We're committed to stewarding God's word. Look with me at verse 25 and 26. It says, I've become its servant, the church's servant, according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. See, Paul was a servant according to God's commission, which is a word that carries with it the idea of stewardship. Think about when you commission someone to something, usually send them into a task with responsibility and resources. That's the idea of a commission. When we commission missionaries, we send them out to a responsibility with resources. And they steward those things and report back. They answer back, right? This is how these relationships work. Well, Paul was a servant of the church, but he answered to God because he was on mission with responsibility and resources from God. His job wasn't to be a special conduit of these things. He just had the responsibility of making the most of the resources God gave him, especially the Word of God, the Bible. Now, let me just kind of rephrase this point because this is so important. Based on the end of verse 26, Colossians 1, which says that God has been revealed 
to all the saints, pastors don't have a special revelation from God. Just a responsibility to lead you to make the most of the resource of God's revelation. God has revealed himself to you through Christ. Through his divine revelation, the Bible, which is the very word of God to us. That's why at Moberly, our first stated value is biblical truth. So you can expect every week when you show up at Moberly that we're going to open the Bible together, that we're going to study entire books of the Bible, that we're going to talk about the hard things in the Bible, that we're going to talk about the weird things in the Bible, because there's some of those too. We're going to do all this stuff because they all point to the main thing in the Bible, which is Jesus. Jesus. But all of this is to help you make the most of the resource of God's word, which means you must also take personal responsibility of God's revelation. You have personal stewardship because the word of God has been revealed to you, saints, believers in Jesus. It's not a special thing that comes only through the vocational ministers. It's also been revealed to you. We're just here to help you make the most of it. But to make the most of it, you've got to take personal stewardship of the Word of God. So listen, if, you're bul- if the bulk of your interaction with Scripture is on a Sunday morning, think about your week. If the bulk of your interaction with Scripture is on a Sunday morning, you're missing out. It would be like if I gave you directions to Kroger, And I wrote a shopping list for you, and I handed you a gift card, but you never went. You would starve. This is the point. This is what we do when we come here on Sunday morning. We just help you make the most of what God is providing for you in his revelation of Scripture. Third thing is this. We're committed to seeing Christ formed in you. Christ formed in you. This is a commitment we make to you as your spiritual leaders. Verse 27 says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There's been a lot of talk over the years about what makes a church successful. And we're coming off of about almost 30 years of what experts in church world, whoever these people are, they call the church growth movement. Church growth movement. As if that's not been happening for 2,000 years. This is what they call it, 30 years. And what they mean is that everything churches did was designed to get more people in the building, like programs and productions galore. Like that was the whole emphasis of the church. That's what the church was about. It was called the church growth movement. Just get more people in the room and that's what is success. And honestly, a lot of good came from this too. Now we can't want to, I want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? A lot of good came from this, but one negative was the pervasive idea that a church was successful based on the size of their budget, the size of their buildings, or the number of people on their roster. And this is, Hurtful. Just a personal story. Um, I grew up attending Moberly over on our Longview campus long before this campus existed. That's where my family are still members today. And uh, we, uh, you know, it's just our church. And 
But it's interesting what you would hear as a person who grew up in Moberly uh, from other people who didn't really know much about Moberly except that it was there on the loop over in Longview and that it was big. And they would say things like, oh, that's the big church over there. By the way, this still happens. I still hear this, especially in our community here in Marshall. Moberly's the big church. Or how about this one? Moberly's the rich church. Ah, I used to hear stuff like that. But you know what's interesting about it is as a person who was growing up in Moberly, those were never words that I would have used personally to describe what I experienced in Moberly. <laughs> because I think Moberly leaders got this. They understood that, that the glorious wealth isn't by being bigger and better than other churches or whatever. It was Christ in you, Christ in me. So do you want wealth? Do you want true, glorious wealth? It's Christ in you. This is the reality. This is what Paul's saying in verse 27. Nothing less than Christ, nothing more than Christ, just Christ in you. So to borrow language from Pastor Andrew Aber, who's our lead pastor over on the Longview campus, he says this, growth is the goal. What are we about as a church? Growth is the goal. Not numerical growth, but growth in Christ. Spiritual growth. Growth in maturity. We aren't asking people to help Moberly grow. We want Moberly to help people grow. This is our measuring stick. But notice in verse 28, Paul's language changes from I statements to we statements. What does this matter? Well, we know from chapter 1, verse 1, that's this letter that he's writing to the Colossians. It's not just a letter that's only from him, but also from Timothy, who is there writing with him, most likely in prison with him, or at least near the prison, writing with Paul. And it could also mean, including other leaders, such as like Epaphras, who was mentioned in verse 7 of chapter 1. But what we know is that as they proclaim Jesus, which is in verse 28, this primary action of the church, which Aaron talked about last week, as they proclaim Christ, they do it through warning and through teaching with all wisdom. And when it comes to warning against things like idols and, and warning against false teachers and, and even bearing the responsibility of teaching the truth about Jesus, ministers cannot do this alone. Ministers can't do this alone. I think Paul makes a shift here intentionally to, to not just use I statements, but to say we, because there needs to be a plurality of leadership in the church for accountability, for support, for wisdom. If we elevate one person, man or woman, to the top, it's always going to end up in a bad place. But if we give those people support, if we share responsibility and leadership, then what we'll see is wisdom. Just like the Proverbs say in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22, plans fail when there's no counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. There's wisdom in the counsel of many. This is the truth of the Bible, right? So to see Christ formed in you, it means speaking difficult truths. It means even calling you to sacrifice or talking about uncomfortable things. Sometimes it even means telling you you're wrong, which I get it, admittedly. The telling part is not the hardest part. It's receiving that and admitting I'm wrong 
You know, that's the hardest part. If you've ever been in a relationship with someone, you know, I get it. That's my hardest part too. But we've got to be able to do that for one another, to warn against false teaching, to warn against things like idols, and to bear the responsibility of teaching the truth about Jesus takes more than one person to do it with wisdom. And so you can know that when these things happen at Moberly, you're not getting an opinion of one person. You're getting the wisdom of leaders who want to see Christ formed in you, who want you to experience the glorious wealth of Christ in you. So that's our measure of success. The last thing we're committed to is committed to striving with his strength. Paul says, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Pastors and spiritual leaders ought to be people who work hard. They ought to be. You know, and this shouldn't be too hard or too big of a thing to ask because we only work one day a week, right? Just, you listening? Anybody listening? Okay. I love that joke. Uh, it's not true. <laughs> but you should expect me to prepare well. You should expect me to lead your staff well. You should expect me to show up for you in your time of need. You should expect me to never let us become spiritually complacent. You should expect me to always keep the vision in front of you, the purpose of why we gather as a church. You can expect all these things, and these things take hard work, but you can also take this truth to the bank, that if by God's grace we happen to do something right, it's not because of our ability or our competency. It's only because of God's power and his grace. In fact, before I came to the point in my life where I recognized that there was nothing else I could do with my life that would ever satisfy my soul except to answer God's call to ministry, I never thought this is what I was going to be doing. Oh, I had a whole list of things I wanted to be doing. <laughs> but early on in my ministry, because there's so many people that I see as more competent than me, smarter than me, more education than me, whatever else. Early on in my ministry, God gave me this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and this became my life verse. And I just want to share it with you just as a way to let you know me a little bit more. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 through 6, it says this, Such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. It's not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our adequacy, or other translations translate that our sufficiency or our competency, it's from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. So I can tell you, like on a daily basis in ministry, I'm not just figuring out what to do. I'm going, okay, God, you have to help me because I really don't know. But I'm committed to doing that, to striving in his strength, and all of your leaders ought to be. I know I don't bring much to the table. But I also grew up with a grandmother who made sure that I remembered this biblical truth, and she put it in her words. She said, no worky, no eaty. Uh, and I love to eat, right? So you can expect me to work hard for you. And you, we're going to work hard for you as we strive with his strength. But it's going to be fueled by God's power. Something I have to manage in ministry is the temptation. Like Zach Eswine is an author who wrote, writes about the temptations that pastors go through. He says, pastors are tempted to, uh, be, to, 
to need to be everything, to know everything, to fix everything, and to do it all quickly. This is something that comes from inside of pastors. We feel like that's something we ought to be doing. But we've got to lay that temptation down because while my responsibility is to lead you to maturity to Christ, I cannot be Christ for you. Only God can save you. Only God can secure you. And only God can sustain you. So while God has commissioned me to serve you, even that can only happen in his power. And frankly, that's good news for all of us. So we all depend together on God's power. I want you to know, I'm so thankful for a church that allows me uh, to serve and lead as God calls and to fulfill my calling that God's given me here on this earth. And while you should expect these commitments from me and from your staff and from your deacons and your teachers, you need to hear the complete truth about ministry And the Apostle Paul gives us this in his letter to the church in Ephesians in chapter 4. Ephesians 4.11 says, Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some shepherds, and teachers. That sounds like a pretty cool group of people, right? Like you'd want to be around them. And what's happened in our churches is that for the last several decades, we've gone, those sound like such cool people. Let's hire them and let them do the work of the church. And that sounds like kind of a good plan. There are even people in those roles with those giftings that kind of want that, except for the next verse, which Paul writes, he gave them to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity, which is stature measured by Christ's fullness. So your spiritual leaders ought to make these commitments to you, and you ought to hold them to it. But you should never expect them to do the spiritual work to which God calls you, which is to know Christ, to grow in Christ, and to make Christ known to the world. This is the work of the church, and we're in it together. We're in it together. So you want to make an impact in East Texas? You want to make an impact beyond? You want to see your church grow? Get involved in ministry with your leaders and take a next step.